Good evening, friends, and welcome. Uh, it is good to be together, and particularly if you are visiting us, uh, it is wonderful to have you uh, amongst our family. Let me pray as we open up and reflect on uh, this passage tonight. Uh, dear Lord, we do thank you that we gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ because of your grace to us. Uh, Lord, uh, as we look at this passage tonight, as we think about what it means to be growing together, uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit is with us, uh, guiding uh, my words, but also each of our hearts, uh, that we might know you and love you more. Amen. Last week, uh, we started a new series uh, titled, What Are We About as God's Church? And I chose this series because it's important to be clear about who we are before God uh, as individuals, but also collectively. What does God want for us as his people in this, in this place? And our faith is deeply personal. So each of us has to come to Christ before God as an individual. Uh, we need to recognise God's grace and mercy to us. We need to repent and believe. But when we do that, we join a family. And so we want to talk about, well, how do we function together as a family? Because we've got the potential to do something greater together than we could ever do apart. So last week, we looked at the first of our four purpose statements, loving Jesus, and it was all about our response to God's love for us. Because of God in his great mercy, and this is how he puts it in 1 Peter, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the theme uh, this week is our second in our list, Growing Together. And the passage we just read really continues from where we left off last week. And then it goes into this extended metaphor of what it means to be a body. Uh, and so he really has two points uh, as Paul uh, goes through the passage. Firstly, uh, don't be a jerk. Uh, that's slightly paraphrased. Uh, but you know, Paul wants us to be completely clear that our attitude to one another is just as significant, in fact, more significant than our contribution. Uh, so we need to start with our attitude. And the second thing he wants to say is that we've all been given gifts. And therefore, if you are a follower of Christ, you have a responsibility to the body of Christ to use your gifts faithfully. So if last week was all about how we become part of the body of Christ. Uh, this tonight is all about how we function together as the body of Christ. And once again, uh, for those who are more visually minded than verbal, uh, we want to look, when the body of Christ all works together, it's a beautiful thing. So it looks more like this. Okay, L Last week I went ice skating, today I'm going Olympic diving. Uh, when the body works together, that is a beautiful thing. Everything just working in sync. You can imagine that's going to go beautifully straight into the water. That's beautiful. But when the body doesn't work so well together, uh, and most of us can relate more to the next one, it looks more like this. Okay, so we want to be the first one. We don't want to be the second one. But you get the point, don't you? A, a body working together is a beautiful thing. But when it's not, well, churches can end up looking kind of like that. And that's what we want to avoid. So Paul sets the context for us growing together by grounding it in our new identity. So this is where we start in our passage together. Verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. 
This is your true and proper worship. So what Paul's doing here is he's using the language of Old Testament Jewish temple worship to describe what it means to be a follower of Christ. So in the Old Testament, that the worshipper would come up to the temple and they would bring an animal, uh, an animal that was you know, without blemish, to be sacrificed as a symbol of paying the price for the sin of the person. So that animal was a substitute, and it's a graphic image, isn't it? This animal literally coming up and being killed as a consequence of your sin. And we're called, in this metaphor that Paul is using, we are parallel to being like the animal. Uh, So we're not like the worshipper coming up to the temple, we're like the animal. Uh, It doesn't get any more committed than that. That we are called to give our lives as a living sacrifice. So Christ sacrificed himself for us to pay the price for our sin. And we are called to live our lives sacrificially, wholeheartedly, single-mindedly for Christ. That's who we have been called to be as Christians. And that's going to be more than just sort of lifestyle adjustments. It means a whole new way of life. So this is how Paul puts it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. So the pattern of our world and particularly our cultural context in this time of history says it's all about the individual. It's all about me and the greatest moral good is me finding happiness. But as Christians we've been called to turn away from that self-centric view of the world, where life is bigger and more significant than just transient pleasures. That God has called us to live in relationship with him and according to his purpose for our life. So our natural inclination is to make us the centre of everything. As we become followers of Christ, we're called to make God the centre of everything. And he becomes our compass. He becomes our guide. He identifies our purpose together. And it gets a bit lost in translation, but being transformed isn't just a matter of trying harder. It's actually something that God is doing within us. It's God who is transforming and God who is changing us to be more like him. It's an ongoing process. We're saved once but we are a work in progress for our entire life. And so as we read God's word, as our brothers and sisters in Christ speak God's word to us, as the Holy Spirit does his thing and convinces us of what is true, it all comes together to reorient our minds, to give us new minds, to move away from the patterns of the world and to God's good, pleasing and perfect will. And in this particular context, as Paul is writing, he's concerned with our will, or God's will, for us together. What is God's will for us as we gather as his people, and what does it mean for us to use our gifts? But he doesn't start with an action, he starts with our attitude. So verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, 
Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. We all have a natural inclination to compare ourselves to other people. And I think most of the time we do it destructively. So on one end of the spectrum, uh, we use comparison to devalue who God has created us to be. So we look around the world and there's always someone who seems more talented, more able, more confident than us. At the other end of the spectrum, there are people who really are genuinely, exceptionally talented. Uh, They're talented speakers, they're talented musicians, they're talented leaders. Uh, People want to follow them, people want to be like them. But instead of using that giftedness humbly, so often it becomes a source of arrogance and self-reliance and pride. Or sometimes we think we're just better than we are, or we're only satisfied when we feel and feel good when we get the things that we want. When the outcome goes our way, then we're happy. Ironically, in our quest to feel valued and to feel good about ourselves, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to celebrate other people's giftedness and to take pleasure in what other people can do. And we end up in actually what's a very lonely place because it's all about competing against others. Whatever our particular destructive tendency, it has more of an impact than simply me. It has an impact on who we are collectively. Yeah, and when you look at the history of you know, great companies or even sometimes civilizations, uh, there's two big factors that seem to come up a lot in their downfall. Uh, the first is they, they started out as a pillar of strength with a clear purpose and a clear identity, but then they're pulled apart by infighting. And they're pulled apart by from within, not so much from the external factors around them. But then the second factor is those external factors. They then come and wash over them. And that's true for institutions, it's true for civilizations, but it's also true for churches and perhaps also for families. That when we lose our sense of purpose together, when we lose our sense of identity, then church all of a sudden becomes all about me. How's this church going to satisfy my needs? And if it satisfies them, I'll stay, and if it doesn't satisfy them, I'll go. Or I'll just stay and be really bitter about it. But how we function together, our attitude to one another, will either build us up or tear us apart. And churches go one of two ways. They either wither and die, or they implode that they collapse in on themselves. And when that happens, it's such a tragedy to watch because it's not just the end of an institution, but real lives are impacted, real people are hurt, and not just between relationships between each other, but for many people, relationship with God. So how do we avoid that? How do we use comparison constructively? Well, I think it starts with recognising people as a blessing rather than a threat. Uh, that we actually have an opportunity to learn from other people. Uh, We have an opportunity to learn from their perspective and experience. Uh, There's something good about sharing the load, isn't there? Uh, When it doesn't just all lean on you, but we share it together in both the good times and the bad. 
Uh, your strengths complement my weaknesses. And together we can do more to reach our community for Christ. So whatever good aspirations we have as a church, whatever plans we come up with, it has to start with us loving Jesus and us loving one another. That needs to be the foundation from which we can then do everything else. So in the words of verse 5, in Christ, though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. There's something incredibly liberating, isn't there, in knowing that uh, we don't have to be the best at anything. Uh, We don't have to be good at everything. We simply need to use what God has given each of us faithfully. So if that's our attitude, then let's talk action. What does Paul call us to do? Verse 6. For we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. There doesn't seem to be any particular order to this list. And we know from the other letters that Paul wrote that this is not the definitive list. There are other things that he could have included uh, in this passage. But as he writes to the Romans, uh, these are the seven he's given us. And so let's reflect on each of them briefly. And as we do that, just think mentally, where do your gifts lie? Uh, And as you go through each one, I think there's one of three answers. There's yes, that's easy enough. There's no. Uh, And then there's the maybes, uh, which is you're not quite sure. And if you're not quite sure, then maybe, you know, work it out. Uh, It'd be good to talk to someone and say, uh, usually it'll go something along the lines of, do you have a heart and a passion for this and do you have an ability to do it? And if those two things come together, then it's probably more yes than no. Uh, But let's look at each one and think about where does this apply to you? What's relevant to you? So our first gift is prophecy which is not an easy one to start with. Uh, But I think it's best defined as God convicting someone of how his general word applies to a specific situation. Uh, So it might be a word of encouragement. It might be a word of rebuke. uh, It might be a call to a particular call of action. uh, It might be a call to a particular change of action. uh, But it starts with God convicting you of his word. And it starts with being consistent with the faith we profess. So it has to be consistent with God's word. If it's not consistent with God's word, then right from the start, we have to be sceptical about where it's coming from. And it does require discernment, doesn't it? Simply because we have a deep conviction that something is true doesn't necessarily mean it's a deep conviction from God. And so we should always be suspicious when God's conviction neatly aligns with my preferred outcome. Because we're so good at justifying ourselves and then using God to give credibility to what we want. So we do have to be a bit suspicious. We do have to trust each other and test what we are saying and hearing. In the words of Paul from 1 Thessalonians, Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, holding on to what is good, Reject every kind of evil. 
So we do need to deal with prophecy with discernment, but that doesn't mean we simply write it off. That when someone speaks, that we couldn't possibly be coming from God. Our second one uh, is I, that Paul identifies is serving. And it's sort of a, a general, all-encompassing kind of word for doing good for the sake of others. And certainly in a church life, there's plenty of opportunity to serve. Uh, sometimes uh, we serve within the context of our programs and our structures and our ministries. Uh, sometimes we have the opportunity to serve just relationally. Uh, we know lots of people and there's lots of opportunity to love other people. You don't need a program to love someone else. You don't need a program to serve. But certainly for us, you know, we've got so many things going on in our different ministries. Some we see from the front, others are behind the scenes. You know, from setting up chairs to looking after our property to going and uh, uh, helping out in someone's home uh, to looking after uh, supper. Whatever it is, there are so many opportunities to use what God has given you to do good. And so think, well, what could I do? You can't do everything, but what could I do to love and serve other people? And the next one on our list is teaching. And certainly as we read all of Paul's letters, teaching is so fundamental because the way we teach will either lead people to godliness or lead people astray. So this is Paul's advice to Timothy. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. You know, over the next couple of weeks, we are going to start teaching scripture in I think nine schools, 50-odd classes, 30 teachers. Uh, We get an opportunity every week to go in there and to share the good news of Jesus with young people from our community. That's a pretty awesome opportunity, isn't it? It's a wonderful privilege. Uh, But with that also comes a responsibility to teach God's word faithfully. Uh, Each week we have cross-life youth, cross-life kids. Uh, We have our connect groups, which are like our Bible studies. Uh, Every week we have those opportunities to teach God's word. And so we need to do it faithfully. We need to do it diligently. And for those who have that responsibility, they should feel the weight of that responsibility. Our fourth gift is in verse 8. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. Encouragement is not simply words of affirmation or platitudes or inspirational cat memes. Uh, Although I do love a good, you know, hanging in there cat meme. Uh, Not so much. Uh, What it is, though, it's about pointing people to Jesus. How do we encourage? We encourage them to love Christ. Uh, And we can all do that, but some people are particularly gifted. Uh, There are some people who are just particularly gifted at noticing where people are at. Uh, and to be able to go over and ask the right questions and have the right response. Uh, they're the sorts of people who are able to have those uh, sort of awkwardly personal conversations, but the other person knows that the questions and their comments all come from a position of love and a desire to see them grow in their love for Christ. Uh, so we can all do a bit, but for some people, you've been particularly gifted. Uh, And if that's you, then it's out of sight and no one will see it, but you are a huge blessing to our life together. Number five is giving. So in the context of Paul's writing, he's talking about giving of our possessions. So sometimes it might be being generous with the stuff that we've got. 
as being generous with your lawnmower or your bike or your trailer. Uh, It is just an object and if it gets scratched, the world will not end. Uh, For some people, it's easier to hand it over than for others. Uh, Not the bike, yeah. (laughs) There's a limit. The lawnmower, who cares? The bike, not so easy. Uh, But we're called to be generous with our possessions. For others, others, uh, it is to be financially generous. Uh, But whatever your particular circumstance, how do we be generous with what God has given us? Uh, And for some, uh, you have a particular spirit of generosity. And for others, and perhaps the same people, uh, you have been placed in a particular financial position where you can be generous. So wherever you are, how do you use that for the glory of God? Number six, almost on our home straight, leadership. I think when it comes to leadership, uh, we have mixed feelings. Uh, We don't like leaders who think they're better than everyone else. And so often people use the position of leadership uh, to uh, build themselves up and it's more about their power than serving. And often we associate leadership with being told what to do and uh, if you're a creative personality, then that can feel very stifling uh, because you you want to do it your way because you've got a brilliant idea. At the same time, even though we're ambivalent, I think we do see the value of leadership that we see that things work better, that a team functions better, that organisations can do more when there is clear direction and purpose, when everything is running in the same direction. And that requires leadership. Sometimes it's formal leadership. uh, Other times it's simply situational leadership. It's the willingness to step into the role and be a leader, whether it's your title or not. Uh, When we talk together uh, amongst the ministry leaders in our church, uh, we talk about being consultative and decisive. Uh, So we want to be consultative, which means we want to value the experience and the knowledge and the wisdom and the giftedness of our church members because there is so much experience in this room. And at the same time, we need to be decisive, that we need to make decisions. We won't always get it right. We won't always clearly won't be perfect but we need to make decisions. And sometimes that means your contribution won't be included in that final decision. And that can be frustrating. And sometimes that can be hurtful because it feels like you haven't been valued in the conversation. But if leaders are called to lead, then for the rest of us, uh, we are called to respect our leaders and to support their decisions. So in the words of Hebrews 13, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So as leaders implement decisions, sometimes that means it'll be about encouraging others. Sometimes it'll be about spurring people on. Uh, Sometimes... It will be about rebuking and challenging. But it should always be motivated by a desire for godliness. So a desire uh, to honour God in that decision, a desire to love that person, and a desire to love the body of Christ. And if leaders fail to do that, if I fail to do that as I lead this church, then you should rightly challenge me on that. 
And so if we're not making tough decisions, we need to make tough decisions. If we're not calling out sin as a church, we need to call out sin. But we need to lead people in godliness. And finally, number seven, mercy. I think mercy is the more nuanced version of serving. So if servings aren't general, uh, how we serve people generally, uh, mercy is really those people uh, who on behalf of our congregations and our, our church family are particularly gifted at looking, at, uh, looking after those who are most in need. Uh, so the sick, uh, the aged, uh, the disabled, uh, those who are socially isolated. Uh, and again, some people just have a particular gift for loving people in those situations. Yeah, and we can't all do it. We're not all gifted to do it. We're not all, you know, in terms of our time and availability, able to do it. But we do it as a whole, as a whole body. Uh, so in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a mobile food pantry, uh, which uh, provides uh, cheap food for, for people uh, who would find that helpful. Uh, now everyone can be involved in that. But it is not just the ministry of the 10 people doing it. It's a ministry of our church. Uh, other people are particularly gifted with pastoral care. They go to nursing homes. They visit people uh, who are shut in uh, and unable to, say, come to church or come to another group. And again, they just spend their week quietly going around, meeting with people, opening up the Bible with them, praying with them, encouraging them. Uh, they do it as a personal relationship with that person, but they also do it on our behalf. So as we get to the end of that list, seven things, uh, as you look at that, what are you currently doing? And, and praise God for those good things. And what could you potentially do? Where do you have the giftedness and it's just a matter of using your giftedness in a way that will serve the body of Christ? People often say about churches that 80% of the ministry is done by 20% of the people. Uh, I think it's an awful saying. Uh, Firstly, it should never be true. Uh, We've all been given gifts and we should all be using our gifts for the sake of the body of Christ. I think that the morsel of truth in it is that for some people who have been gifted much, much is expected. So we shouldn't use that as an excuse not to use our gifts more or to sit back and let others have a go. But we should all be involved. I think the second thing is I'm thankful that it isn't true for us. Uh, As I look around at our church family, as I see what's happening each week, I'm in the fortunate position of perhaps seeing things a little bit more than most. Uh, We are incredibly blessed. I'm so thankful for the generosity and the giftedness of our people and to see how people are using their gifts every single week. Our biggest challenge isn't actually getting people to use our, our gifts. Our biggest challenge is coordinating it all. So actually making sure that we've got the right people who are rightly equipped, you know, serving in the right ministries, uh, so we can make the most of everything that we've been given. That's our biggest challenge. And then making sure that each of our ministries actually works together to be part of a single, coherent whole. Uh, so our SRE ministry you know, connects in with our children's ministry. Uh, this morning, as we got all the kids and the leaders up at church, and, you know, many of you guys are there serving our kids in the morning and serving our families in the morning. And our f- morning congregation, uh, which just happens to be our, our financially largest congregation, uh, is using their wealth 
to support uh, and help us resource our youth ministry and our children's ministry so we can equip more young people uh, to know Christ and to grow to be mature Christians. We're one body, many parts, all working together. And that's who we are because of God's mercy to us. And it's precious. It's worth protecting fiercely. Uh, But it's also worth taking pleasure in. Just to take a moment to sit back and see how wonderful it is when people use their gifts for the glory of God. Because that's who we want to be together. And when we do that, then we will see the impact we have, not just in our lives as we grow in godliness, but we'll also see the impact we have on our community as we share the word of God, as we're salt and light. Now let me close uh, with the, the last words from the passage we read tonight, which I think is just a great snapshot picture. Uh, so I'm not going to go into the, the detail of it. That would be a wonderful thing to do. But just to let the words speak for themselves. Let me read it as we close. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Amen.